And it's important for us to create spaces where they feel that they can be honest and authentic with us rather than performing perfection as leaders, because I don't think that kind of leadership is sustainable. I think we need courageous leaders, vulnerable leaders, leaders who are honest and authentic, and we have to create the spaces for our leaders to be that way. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda-Salgado. This month, 31 female representatives were sworn into the New York City Council, marking the first time ever that women make up a majority in the city's governing body. And just 12 days in, they've been hit with crisis after crisis. A massive COVID surge, a snowstorm, and a fire in the Bronx that took the lives of 17 of our neighbors. Already, it's been a challenging year. Among the women facing all of this head-on, are Kichan Suel, New York City's first female police commissioner, and Shahana Hanif, the first Muslim council member elected. Sayu Bojwani is one of the many people who helped pave the way for such a monumental election. Sayu served as the city's first commissioner of immigrant affairs. She's also the founder of the Women's Democracy Lab, as well as New American Leaders a program that prepares first- and second-generation Americans to run for public office. In fact, a few of the women elected to the city council took part in her program. Today, I'm talking to Sayu about how the New York City Council might operate a little differently given its new membership and the challenges the new cohort might face while they're in office. Now, a quick message from our friends and sponsors at McKinsey & Company. Find out about the biggest ideas in business on McKinsey's Insights app, where you can listen to podcasts like our flagship show, The McKinsey Podcast. We're so not tuned in to the dynamic going on for the current employees. What matters to them most? Or watch our author talk series featuring law professor Dorothy A. Brown. 60% of Black college students don't graduate. And when I came across that statistic, I got so depressed and read lots of articles about, for example, The Next Normal, where you can learn about the coronavirus's latest impact on business. To hear, see, and read more, download McKinsey's Insights app now. Now, back to the show. Here's my conversation with Sayu. I'm Sayu Bojwani. I'm the former, uh, the first commissioner of immigrant affairs for New York City and um, the founder of Women's Democracy Lab, which supports indigenous women and women of color post-election. And well, this this year, right, there was a historic amount of women in city council. Would you mind telling me how significant is it that the city council is majority female run? Sure. I mean, I think it's uh, it's a historic moment, both because we have, um, for the first time in 20 years, a combination of a new mayor and so many new members in the city council. And that hasn't happened since 2000, since the 2001 election. I think the, the composition of the council is especially significant in a moment when women of color are taking on the mantle of leadership around the country. And we're seeing the value of those voices um, to ensure gender equity and racial equity. So I think the the select the election of so many women of color to the city council by New York City voters 
is a clear indication that they're different, they're ready for a different kind of leadership. And it's also a tribute to the work that these candidates did to ensure that uh, voters turned out in a year when we were grappling with the pandemic and with this new system of ranked choice voting. Yeah. And I'll just say, I think it's important to underline that there's there's some sense that women uh, were elected in large numbers because of ranked choice voting, but actually many of them were elected you know, before the ranked choice voting were ca- was calculated. So they were elected across the board on election night. And I know like their term technically begins in January, but what have the women of city council already accomplished? Well, I think they've already shown the value of shifting the conversation away from uh, there was a there was a crowded field of potential speakers for the city council and that field winnowed. And I think that was in part because women of color came, some of them came together around a particular candidate, but many of them came together to leverage the power that they had as a coalition to change the outcome of of the election. And so that's one thing. I think the symbolism is also really important that we we have seen many more of these women breaking records, right? So we have someone like Shahana Hanif, who's now the first South Asian woman on the city council, for example, um, and many others um, who have broke broken records. And I think that symbolism is important for New York City, um, for young people, people of color, immigrants to see that it is possible and that our voices do matter. And how do you think city council will operate and like function now that the majority is women? I mean, the reality is that women have and women of color have been foot soldiers of our democracy for a very long time. Many of the women who have been elected are women who served principals in the council before. Um, so you look at someone like Amanda Farias or Crystal Hudson and Shahana Hanif, all of whom were um, staff members in the council. So you're coming in both with a group of women who both understand how the legislative process works, which is really important, as well as with new voices and new energy. And so I think we're going to see, I would say, three things. I think first, you're going to see uh, a level of savvy and expertise like we have never seen before in the council, because I think women of color always bring uh, their whole selves to the work and are the strongest voices for constituents and communities rather than for themselves as individuals. So I think the conversations, the way that we talk about policy, the way we talk about issues is going to be much more nuanced and is gonna have an intersectional context that we have not seen before. I think the second thing that you're gonna see is the building of their power away from themselves as individuals to themselves as a collective. And that's probably not going to happen immediately and overnight, but I think that they are going to feel the power of being in a room with many others who look like them. And that has often not been the case, right? So often when we have elected women of color in recent times, you know, they're the first or the only, and they're one among they're few among many, but in this case, the powerful visual symbolism of seeing themselves in a room and recognizing that collectively they make up a majority, 
that uh, is going to be very powerful vis- uh, visually. And I think it will take a little bit of time for them to gel around how much it matters when they come together around an issue, either in support or in opposition. What about with the first female commissioner? What do you think that's going to look like? And how do you think that will impact the, the police force here in New York? I feel like she's in a really tough spot in a damn if you do, damn if you don't kind of situation. I think we often set women of color up to do the worst jobs. And in some ways she has the worst job, right? I mean, being police commissioner is the, in some ways the toughest job given the the history of that institution and how it works. And so I think what we're asking her to do is work like as we always do is give women of color the toughest job and set them up for failure. And so I think the real challenge is, you know, what kind of support is going to be built up around her to ensure that there's meaningful change and to make sure that she doesn't become, you know, the person on whom this word falls kind of thing when um, something goes wrong, right? Like we know that police reform and NYPD reform is going to be a significant part of the conversation, right? So the real question is like, what is going to be her role and how is she going to get supported to make change? And will she be blamed if change is not possible? So I, I think it's a symbolic and important um, appointment, but I think it, it is a supercharged situation for her to be walking into. I mean, it looks like the this next government, it's just like I mentioned before, it's going to be majority people of color, majority um, black leaders. Um, what does all of this mean for New Yorkers? I mean, I, I think that like at the first baseline, it's, um, you know, and I've said this in different ways before, but I think it is incredibly important for um, New Yorkers to see government and see leaders who look like them and who reflect their experiences and who are responsive to those experiences by by having policy that considers the needs of a diverse group of New Yorkers. Um, but I think that second piece is the is more important, right? I think the the hurdle, the next hurdle is for these council members to show that they truly understand what is happening in New York to the especially the New Yorkers who have the least and the least access and respond to that with policy. And so that remains to be seen. But I think, you know, I I used to run New American Leaders, which trained first and second generation Americans to run for public office. Um, And several of the women who are elected to the council are alumna of our program. And one of the things that we say is that it's not just important that you look like your voters, but that you are responsive to your voters, right? And that's what we we have to see. But I do think, I think that the um, the learning curve is much smaller when you already come from these communities because you already know the experience. The challenge is, can you turn that experience into policy that's responsive? But I think you need both. It's not enough to just be, you know, to share the experience. Do you think this, like New York is electing more women and people of color will continue? I mean, look, I don't take, I think we can never take for granted that the that democracy is moving forward as we are seeing right now. It's under a significant threat. We're seeing, you know, after Barack Obama was elected, we got Donald Trump. So I think that democracy is a daily project and it's our daily responsibility to defend it. So I wouldn't 
think that I don't think that we're on some sort of forward progression. I don't think we can assume that we are under forward progression. I think these these council members are going to have to run in two years because of redistricting. Several of them had extremely close races. In it, they won in good numbers, but right up until election day, it was extremely close and competitive. I think you have a complicated political landscape right now with the Working Families Party and DSA, as well as the traditional political actors like the unions and the, to some extent, the party machine. And so we're in a moment of transition that I don't think we can predict exactly where it's going to land. And I think these newly elected women of color are going to have to continue to fight for voters' confidence in them. And they're going to definitely, some of them are definitely going to have a competitive election in two years. And did you play a role in getting any of the electeds into office? Well, several of them, I don't, I don't want to take personal credit for anyone, but um, several of them were women who um, talked with me before they ran and who took the training program at New American Leaders that I started and ran until the end of last year. And, you know, I think that I've been a supportive coach and mentor for several people. I think you mentioned in the beginning that you also support them after they're elected. You know, how will you guys keep supporting them? And also, how can regular New Yorkers keep supporting these women? So I will say two things about that. The organization that that we are in the process of building is called Women's Democracy Lab. And the goal of the organization is to ensure that women of color and indigenous women can thrive and feel safe while they are in elected office. We invest a lot in encouraging people to run and in supporting them during their campaigns. And then once they get into office, it's like, okay, well, now you're elected, please do the things that we sent you there to do. But the reality is that women of color and people of color more broadly are being elected into systems that were never designed for us to be there. When the table was being set, it w- we were not the guests that were expected to be at the table. And so there is a huge amount of difficult work that these women of color are carrying on behalf of their districts and their constituents, but also on behalf of a democracy that was not designed for us. So I think one of the things that we can all do is recognize that job uh, of serving is as difficult as running for office. Um, I think we have to be extremely supportive of the people we elected to ensure that um, that we're looking at the full picture of what it takes to make a policy go through. Um, I think we have to ensure that we elect them again, um, that we don't attach a purity test, that like they're not going to do every single thing that we expected them to do because there just isn't enough time for that. Um, I think that this the being in elected office is also a long game, right? You, They're new, they're learning things, they're going to figure out how the system works for us and not for us. Um, and making that transformation to the system can take decades, you know? And so I think we have to be patient and supportive. I think that it's important for us to be honest and authentic with them. Um, and it's important for us to create spaces where they feel that they can be honest and authentic with us rather than performing 
perfection as leaders, because I don't think that kind of leadership is sustainable. I think we need courageous leaders, vulnerable leaders, leaders who are honest and authentic. And we have to create the spaces for our leaders to be that way. What do you want male council members to know? That's a good question. I mean, I think that the important thing is that the leading, leading New York City is not a zero-sum game. People don't have to lose for other people to gain. And I think that having women of color in power is a way that we can all benefit. It doesn't take anything away from male leaders or from white women. I think that figuring out how we can ensure that everyone is gaining um, and that you know that the rising tide lifts all boats is is the philosophy and mentality that we want all our leaders to have male or female and my last question which is kind of like a i guess like a summary of what we've been talking about how does race and gender change how we govern i mean i think the f- the first thing um i would say about that is you know i said this earlier that like you know, when you come to the table with these experiences, you bring an intersectional approach that you have lived. And having a lived experience as a woman of color, an immigrant woman, is an experience that can never really be taught. You know, you can you can learn about the issues. You can't learn what it feels like to um, carry all of those experiences with you every day. And having that proximity to the experience Uh, gives you proximity to the solutions. It's beginning to feel like the people of New York can look to their representatives and find someone who looks like them. And hopefully we're seeing a shift to an elected body that's more responsive to the needs of its voters as well. But, like Sayu said, we must continue to hold our elected officials accountable. It's vital that we continue to support them too. They've got their work cut out for them and many are navigating a world of power and tradition that wasn't built for them. Avoid being a policy purist. Consider all the battles fought in order for legislation to go through. Keep the bigger picture in mind. And as redistricting pushes New York City elections forward two years, make it a priority to remain informed on the issues you really care about and find the representatives who care about them too. Before we go, 17 of our neighbors lost their lives in the devastating fire that destroyed an apartment building in the Bronx on Saturday. More than a dozen others are in critical condition, and many more are now without a home. We'll be sharing their stories soon. But first, here's a few ways you can help. The Gambian Youth Organization has put together a GoFundMe. All funds raised will be distributed to the families impacted. So far, they've raised more than $500,000. Take Back the Bronx is collecting donations from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. this Saturday. They're looking specifically for winter clothes. The Red Cross has set up a resource center and refugee station at 2190 Fallen Street. To learn more about how to help the victims of the Bronx fire, check out the show notes. Finally, a new weekly segment with our community manager focused on COVID-19 here in New York City. Hi, everyone. How are you? I'm Daniel LaPlaza, Epicenter's community manager. Okay, so starting today, I'll be answering a new question from our inbox every week. That is on NYC's COVID updates. 
I'll cover everything from vaccines, boosters, and testing, what's going on in schools, and a lot more. If you have a question, please send it my way. You can reach me at daniel at epicenter-nyc.com. All right, so this week's question comes from one of our neighbors who volunteers at a COVID testing site. They've asked us for advice on how to help folks who get understandably frustrated with these long lines. Between technology issues, language barriers, staffing shortages, and very necessary staff breaks, there are a lot of reasons why we're seeing this. So, after spending some time at our mobile unit in Queens Village, here's what I've learned. Communicating frequently and constantly is key. Welcome folks and help make sure they understand the situation right away. Provide wait times if possible, but only if they're honest. Instead of giving a timeline that isn't realistic, let them know how long you'll be before you come back to check in on them. At that point, you can maybe share helpful information. For example, we provide printouts of our COVID coverage, or simply ask how they're doing or how you can help. Whether you're working, volunteering, or waiting in line, remember, we all have the same goal. That is, to keep ourselves and each other safe. We'll be publishing more content around these long testing lines soon, so keep tabs on our website and newsletter. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com to stay in touch. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.